Hi, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church Wood Forest, and we're glad that you've joined us today for this podcast. At Restoration, our mission is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So around here, that takes place in a lot of different ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open up God's word to explore the truth of his word and how we can apply it to our lives. And so we hope that you're able to do that with this message today. We would never want this to be a replacement for church. We would like for it to be a supplement for you as you explore deeper intimacy with Jesus. But if you don't have a church home, join us any week at 9 a.m., and 11 a.m. Welcome to Restoration. Okay, Matthew chapter five. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn there. Uh, we're gonna finish up the Beatitudes today. Uh, as I told you last week, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five through seven, Probably my three favorite chapters in the Bible. If you've been here for very long, I reference Matthew 5 through 7 a lot because it's really uh, Jesus' coming out party. Like it's when he gathered on the mountain. And remember I said last year or last week that we're in an election year and and this was really his agenda. This is uh, the platform that he was running on. He was advocating a countercultural life. This was a life that was gonna be different than anything the Jews had ever seen or heard before. This was all new information to them. And if you remember, the Gospel of Matthew is written to a very Jewish audience. And we've seen it from the very beginning that Matthew is determined to show these people that Jesus is the fulfillment of every prophecy of the Old Testament. That he is the one who has fulfilled it. He is the Messiah, And now he's on the scene. If you remember, his basic message, he picked it up from John the Baptist in chapter three and now in chapter four. Remember, his message was simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And remember, we said the goal is not to get to heaven, but the goal is to get heaven in you. And if you've embraced the gospel where you pray a prayer so you can get to heaven when you die, it's not that that's not a part of the gospel, but that is not the gospel in and of itself. Because the gospel is that heaven came down and met you in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you say yes to Jesus, you are vaulted into a new reality. And now the kingdom is here and now. And you get an opportunity to join Jesus and what he's doing in the world. And so this first section known as the Beatitudes, that word Beatitude means not just blessed, but supremely blessed. So what does that mean? It means really, really blessed, right? And so now Jesus is saying, hey, supremely blessed are those, and he has these eight characteristics of people with a kingdom identity. So... You remember last week, I said this, you don't possess these characteristics in order to gain the kingdom. It's because the kingdom of heaven is in you that you possess these characteristics. So this is not meritocracy. It's not that you do a bunch of stuff to earn God's favor. You can never do that. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you're arguing with me because you're like, you don't know me, I don't have to. 
We're all in this together and all of us could never meet the requirements of holiness apart from Jesus. And that's why Jesus came. And so now Jesus is laying out these eight characteristics of what it looks like to live in the kingdom. Last week we covered the first four statements and these are really internal qualities of kingdom people. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we talked about the idea that this is an impoverished spirit. Those that realize they've got nothing to offer apart from Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed for those who mourn over their sin, who recognize that sin, they are not sin neutral, which a lot of us get there, right? We're, we're kind of sin neutral and we're like, hey, I don't like this sin in my life and I'm willing to live with it. No, when we come in contact with the person of Jesus Christ, where we are living poor in spirit, it leads us to a place of repentance in our life where we're getting rid of the sin. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. These are not the power brokers that inherit the earth, but this is strength under control. Those that live with a quiet confidence that he is all we need. And then blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. To the extent that you are hunger, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, to that extent, you will be filled. So these are all the inner workings, the result of a kingdom identity. And today we're gonna look at the last four and, and really make the case that these are all how kingdom people, because of the first four, interact with the world around them. So Matthew chapter five, verses seven through 12. Let me, let me read it to you and then we'll point a few things out. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's the word of the Lord. Now, if you notice, the very last one, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, he actually spells out a little bit more. He's got three verses for that one beatitude. And so when we get to that, it's gonna give us a picture of what a kingdom reality really entails. But let's look, jump back up to verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. So the question is, what is mercy? What is mercy? I think we use the words grace and mercy kind of synonymously, but they're really very different. Because grace is getting something you don't deserve. It's a gift. It's an undeserved gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved, not of yourselves as a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So that's very clear that grace is this undeserved gift. It's not based on your merit. It's based on what Jesus did for you. Amen. So what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And so at the end of the day, when we think about mercy, uh, it is also the essence of the gospel. So you're getting a gift, not based on your merit, but you are not getting the judgment that you deserve. Romans chapter six, he says it. The wages or the payment for sin is what? Death. 
death. Somebody's got to die for your sin. And Jesus chose to take it on himself. So having compassion on those deserving judgment or not giving someone what they deserve. So this is really countercultural. Um, it's common in our culture to desire that justice is served. Do you agree with that? So uh, I read Fox News and CNN every day. I've got, I've got the apps, they're side by side. And I read both of them to try to get to the truth, right? Because uh, at the end of the day, Fox News has a narrative, CNN has a narrative. There's not a lot of overlap. <laughs> so if you read those two worldviews right now in our nation, man, they look a lot different. And so I read both of them, but there's always a story about somebody that's done something and my heart wants justice. Anybody else? Yeah. Like, I want the bad guy to get what they deserve. And I started thinking about that. So I love action movies. I love uh, movies where stuff blows up. I love high body count movies. Don't judge me. Uh, but man, I just love it. I, I love it when, when stuff's happening. But you know what I love the most about action and adventure movies? I love when the bad guy gets it in the end. Anybody else? Man, uh, producers today build up a storyline so much that by the end of the movie, you're ready for that person to be taken out. And then you just kind of, you're, you're almost thirsty for it. How are they going to get it? I know they're going to get it. I can't wait for them to get it. So here's the challenge of that. Jesus is saying here, have compassion on the bad guy. That's not a movie I want to watch, actually, <laughs> right? That's not something I'm super interested in. I'm not interested in the bad guy getting off. I'm not interested with justice not being served. And so while it's not a movie I want to watch, it's the life that I'm called to live. Does anybody else see the rub there? Yes. I mean, it's just hard. Something in my heart is thirsty for justice. And know this, it's not that justice is a bad thing. But here, Jesus is clearly after something different, isn't he? He's after something different in our heart. So this is a theme that runs throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So we see this, that if you're merciful, you'll be shown what? Mercy. So the merciful receive mercy. If you move over to chapter six, verse 14, it is kind of at the end of the Lord's prayer. It says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. So to the extent you forgive, you'll be forgiven. Which by the way, he says in the next verse, if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive you. That should be scary to all of us. I'm not even sure what it means, but it's not good. But at the end of the day, do you see it? He's saying, hey, listen, the merciful receive mercy. Those who forgive will be forgiven. Chapter seven, verse one, he says, judge not lest you be judged. Because the way you judge is gonna come back to you. All of these are what we call the golden rule. And so the golden rule is is not what some philosopher made up. It's Jesus. It's straight out of the Sermon on the Mount here. And we've adopted that, that, hey, treat others the way you want to be treated. And so that theme is running through the Sermon on the Mount. So what is Jesus trying to get across here? We are all in need of mercy. You, the person in your seat, 
It's the essence of the gospel. And again, it goes back to the first beatitude. The first beatitude says it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those with an impoverished spirit who realize they have nothing to offer the kingdom. That is where mercy falls. You on your best day didn't have it. And when you realize that, that is when the mercy of God comes to you. Think about Matthew 18. Do you remember the parable of the unmerciful servant that he owed the king? And so the king said, I'm gonna take your family. And he begged the king, please don't do that. And the king showed mercy on him and said, you know what? I'm gonna cancel your debt. You're free to go. And he was so overwhelmed with gratefulness that he goes out and finds this dude that owes him a hundred silver coins and he chokes him out and says, you're gonna pay me every bit that you owe me and has him thrown in prison. Guys, that's jacked up. And that is a picture of you and me every day of our life. We want mercy to be shown to us and yet we're not really good at showing the same mercy to other people. So here's the bottom line and you'll hear this a lot today. You will never be able to fully give mercy until you embrace the mercy that you've received. The truth of the matter is Until Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, resides in you, you will never be able to show mercy to people the way they need to be shown mercy. It just won't happen. So that flies in the face of, hey, I need to be more merciful, check. For a lot of us, we'll look at these characteristics and then we'll try to be better. And if you remember, I said this last week, you know, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the spirit. A lot of us look at that as a list that we need to accomplish so that we can look more like Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, cool story, bro. But at the end of the day, you can never be loving enough. You can never be patient enough. You can never be peaceful enough. It is only the inner working of me that allows you to do these things. And in the same way, you'll never be merciful apart from the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. My friend Jamie Winship says this. He says, it's not about what you do, but about what you receive. In the kingdom of God, it's not about you doing and earning things. It's about what you receive from him. This is secret place talk, y'all. This is you getting alone with Jesus every single day and allowing him to transform you as you are communicating back and forth with him. Amen. It's practicing Psalm 139. Yes. Verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there is what? Any offensive way in me. It's coming to him and saying, hey, my life is yours. It's yours. I'm laying it all on the table here. Come, change me, teach me, show me. So blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So let's think about heart for just a second. It's not that flesh that's beating, I mean, it is physically, but there's something bigger that he's getting at. 
The heart represents the totality of your will, your emotion, your personality, your character. It's the essence of who you are. And what he's saying here is happy is the one who is seeking to keep your heart free from sin. It goes back to the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin for they will be comforted. It's a picture of repentance. It's like, hey, listen, I need to keep my heart free from sin as much as possible so that I can see God, a pure heart. Again, it's impossible without Jesus, but it speaks more about the desire to be clean, the desire to be holy, the desire to become like Jesus. And at the end of the day, you are what you consume, right? You are what you consume. And if you are consuming the word of God on a daily basis, it gets in you. The more you meditate on it, um, what happens is over time, your character and your nature changes. And it speaks to motivation here. What is the motivation of your heart as you're interacting with people? Um, We cannot be motive-free this side of heaven. All right, so take a deep breath. But the goal of a life in Jesus is being motivated by him and not by yourself. So think about Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart for what? Everything flows from it. You recognize that this is the whole idea of garbage in, garbage out. Whatever you put in your life is coming to the surface. Here's the problem with that. It comes to the surface at the most inopportune times. Is that true in your life? That you say things or you react in certain ways because you are the sum total of everything you consume. And he's saying, listen, guard your heart. Above all else, guard it because everything flows from it. Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Yes. Create in me what? A clean heart, a pure heart. Do you know what the context of that verse is? David is writing a psalm of repentance because he's committed adultery and murder. Yes. And he's saying, hey, listen, I got no defense. And I'm asking you to create in me a a clean, a pure heart because he knows where having an impure heart led him. When the kings went off the war, David stayed home. He saw a woman bathing and he said, that looks really good. And he invites her into his home. Everything's downhill from there, right? When Jesus is creating a clean heart, a pure heart in you. Maybe you don't look. I say this a lot, but I know this for a fact. Jesus curbs my appetite for sin. When I'm not spending quality time in the secret place, I can just feel that burn and I can feel that draw toward my flesh. But in the secret place with him every day, he's chipping away at my resolve so that he can be the most important thing. Proverbs 23, seven, in the King James Version, it says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So a man thinks in his heart, 
so is he. Psalm 24, verses three through five. Who may, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, those who have clean hands and what? A pure heart. Who does not lift his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Verse five says this, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their savior. So who may ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? This is an idea. Who gets to see God? That's the question. Who gets to see God? Those with clean hands and a pure heart. And here's the truth of the matter. It's not just that we see God. We begin to see the world the way God sees. It's like our eyes are open. The closer we get to Jesus, the more our eyes are open to the brokenness of the world around us and gives us this idea of when and where to press in. If you look at the book of James, half-brother of Jesus, chapter three, verse nine, he says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. What's he saying? He's like, hey, listen, you cannot uh, intake sewage and expect goodness to come out. And it is not congruent for a follower of Jesus to live a double life. Amen. We need Jesus, right? We need him to change us. Yes. And I think about, you know, this may be a practical example. Try this at home this afternoon. Um, Get a glass of water, put some dirt in it, and stir it up. What do you get? You get muddy water, right? It's not really a trick. Um, but here is what's awesome. You take that glass of water and you put it in a faucet, and you let the faucet just pour into that, and what happens? It overflows and overflows and overflows and overflows, and at some point, the water becomes clear. For all of us, we need to be in the stream, in the faucet of God where he is washing over us and creating in us a clean heart, a pure heart. I mean, that is the goal. The goal is for us to be changed. So here is one of the problems that I see in modern day Christianity. In the West, here's what we do. We use the word right here. We use it to try to figure out what we can get away with. It's like, how close can I get to the line without going over? I'm not gonna make a big deal about, you know, social drinking, but I will say this. If your go-to is, well, Jesus drank wine, that's a straw man, right? I would say maybe dig a little bit deeper. Because at the end of the day, it's not about what can I get away with? It's not about, hey, how much is too much? How much gets my buzz on without me getting drunk? At the end of the day, shouldn't the question be, how close can I get to Jesus? How close can I get to Jesus? How much can I become like him? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Here's the challenge. Most of us get to a point pretty quickly that we're good enough, free enough, clean enough, 
Here's the thing, if we're not mourning over our sin, if we're sin neutral, you'll never fully see God in your life. You may get some snapshots. I don't know about you, but in worship today, man, there was a point that I was really moved to tears because you can feel the presence of God in the room. He falls in the room and it's like, whoo, it's, it's just thick. But for some of you, that's the only time you will feel the presence of God this week. Because the truth of the matter is, you're sin neutral. How close to Jesus can I get? Because here's what sin does. It clouds our life. It's that muddy water. You can't see, hear, or understand what God is really trying to say. It clouds our motives clouds our interactions with other. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So it's important to differentiate between peacemaking and peacekeeping. So peacekeeping is passive. That's me just wanting to keep the peace. And so I really don't say the things I want to say because I just want you to be good with me, right? Last weekend, over 400 men at Men's Advance, I probably had a dozen conversations with guys that needed to go home and confess something to their wife. And I know beyond reasonable doubt that probably of the people that I talked to, half of them didn't do it. That they got right to the point, but in the name of peacekeeping, well, I don't want to upset her. What she doesn't know won't hurt her, right? When in reality, all peacekeeping is, is self-protection. You're not protecting your wife, you're protecting yourself. So peacekeeping is passive, where peacemaking is active. If you're peacekeeping, it's actually a false sense of peace because it's not rooted in the truth. Peacemaking is active, it's rooted in truth and contentment. And it all begins with being filled with peace. Again, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. When you said yes to Jesus, you got all those characteristics in you. They're right there beneath the surface and they are cultivated as you spend time with Jesus every day. And here's the deal, when you're filled with peace, you will likely promote peace in the lives of others around you. Amen. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. So what does that, what does that mean? Live at peace with who? Everyone. everyone. Not just the people that vote like I do. So let's real talk this for a minute. I mean, we're in an election year and what does it look like to promote peace among the people who won't vote like you do, who have a different ideology than you? And here's the deal. This is not gonna be a political talk of who's right and who's wrong. It's about as followers of Jesus, we gotta get over ourselves and we gotta stop name calling and say, hey, listen, I disagree with you, but I can still love you. What would that be like? 
to be so committed to making peace. I'll be honest, we can have discourse, but if you don't agree with me, I don't get to call you names and go on, go on social media and tell everybody what a horrible person you are. That's not okay. Because it flies in the, pa- in the face of being a peacemaker. So when people are around you, do they feel more at peace or less? I mean, we live in an anxiety-ridden culture right now, right? And so are you stirring the pot or are you diffusing? I talk a lot about my pre-2010 existence and my post-2010 existence. And before Jesus captured my heart, I absolutely loved just poking the bear and being antagonistic. It was something that really, I was really good at it. And I could get under your skin if I knew what your weakness was, I would just lob it out there and get you really kind of on your heels. And then I would just kind of poke fun. Everybody would laugh. That's not okay. There's nothing okay with that. And I can't say that I'm completely healed of that. I wish I was. But again, I said it last week, sarcasm turns out is not a spiritual gift. That hurts some of you. You're like, mm. But at the end of the day, that whole adage, sticks and stones will break my bones, words will never hurt me. Nope. Not true at all. Words can be so incredibly damaging. And he's saying here, man, are you promoting peace? Are you promoting discord? For evaluative purposes, do you pour gasoline on situations or are you diffusing water? Let me put it a different way. Are you a drama mama? Or drama papa? (laughs) You know, I mean, I don't know. This is not just women. This is all of us. When, When you get involved in a situation, do you tend to stir things up? Do they tend to be more dramatic when you walk away? Or are you a person that is diffusing situations because you're walking in the peace of Jesus? So, Spiritually speaking, peacemaking is not cheap. In fact, it came at a great cost. In Colossians 1.20, it says that Jesus made peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let that sink in. That his version of peacemaking is to the death. His version of peacemaking is I completely laid down my agenda. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember when he said to God, hey, is there any other way? I don't want to do this. I want out. Show me another way, but not my will, but your will be done. That's the agenda of Jesus, to do the will of the Father. That's active peacemaking. And you should thank God for that. Because apart from Jesus shedding his blood, we have no shot to get back to the heart of the Father. Are you willing to do whatever is necessary for peace? So he says that peacemakers are called children of God. What does he mean by that? 
I'm not sure exactly, but I think this. They're called children of God because they look like Jesus. The last one, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are the persecuted. Supremely blessed are the persecuted. Does that rob anybody the wrong way? That he says, hey, listen, in the kingdom of heaven, there are a lot of cool things going on. And, and he ends it and says the most about persecution. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. When you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Remember the fourth beatitude? He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness, for they will be filled. Now the same righteousness that you're pursuing will be the righteousness that persecutes you. Woo! So we talk about this a lot, but the entire subtext of the Bible is suffering. The children of Israel, the nation of Israel was constantly under attack. They were in and out of slavery going into exile, coming back to a war-torn nation. As this was written, they were under Roman occupation. And everyone that followed Jesus died a horrible death. Suffering. So if you can't see suffering as a part of the spiritual life, if you embrace a gospel that says, when you trust Jesus, everything will be great. For how, how many of you, that's a reality? No. He says, hey, listen. When you follow me, expect persecution. Expect it. In fact, Paul talks about it in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, everyone that wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. It is an expected part of the spiritual life. While American followers of Jesus are not being martyred for their faith, it's happening all over the world. Today, people will die because they chose to follow Jesus. And we're kind of immune to that. We don't really understand what that looks like. But know this, in the U.S. today, when you choose to follow Jesus, you will be at least misunderstood if you follow the value system of the kingdom. I mean, today, if you stand for a biblical worldview, you're gonna be called exclusive, you're gonna be called a bigot, you're gonna be called closed-minded. Is that true for anybody in the room? Man, when you stand on the person of Jesus Christ, if you're living from him, people will be drawn to Jesus and some people will hate you because of Jesus. But what does Jesus say? He says, rejoice and be glad. Okay, I get lost here. When you're persecuted, rejoice and be glad. How many of you, the last time things did not work out in your favor went, whoo, yes. Lord, bring it on. 
No, we don't do that. And in the face of persecution, we often shrink back. We change our narrative to accommodate the culture. And he's like, hey, if you will stand firm, great is your reward in heaven. You can rejoice and be glad while you may face persecution right here, right now. There is an eternal reward to following Jesus and for standing firm. Again, the half-brother of James, one of my favorite verses, James 1, 2, he says, consider it what? Joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. It just doesn't make sense. It's this counter-cultural thought that in the face of hard things, I can rejoice and be glad, not because of me, but because of Jesus in me. So we see both the internal and external characteristics of life in the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have an impoverished spirit, who know they have nothing to offer apart from Jesus. For theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. They get the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, who specifically mourn over their sin, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, not the power hungry, those who are living with this strength under control. They're the ones that inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, for they will be filled. Those are internal characteristics of one that lives in the kingdom of heaven. But then look, when he makes this switch, it moves to the external. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We are showing the mercy of God to the world around us because of what's going on in the inner man. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. When we're mourning over our sin, when we're living in repentance and keeping our heart pure, we see God. We see God for who he is and we begin to see the world the way he sees the world. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Not the peacekeepers, but the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Again, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And just a reminder, none of this is possible without Jesus. This isn't a list. This isn't behavior modification. This is the inner working of the Spirit of God that changes us. And he develops these characteristics in us. Galatians 2.20. For I've been crucified with Christ. Now it's no longer I that lives. It is Christ who lives in me. Jesus doesn't want to be an add-on to your life. He wants to be your life. You die, he comes alive in you, and everything changes. This is life in the kingdom of heaven. This is the life we're invited into. Spirit of God, I, I pray today that you're penetrating the hearts of people all over the room. For some, they've been religious, but they recognize today that this doesn't line up with what they thought was following Jesus. And if that's you today, man, I wanna give you hope. 
It was never about you in the first place. You could never earn God's favor. But the invitation is for you to lay down your agenda for his. And so very simply, if that's you today, just pray a prayer, something like this. Jesus, I want you to be the leader of my life. My, day, my way doesn't work. I need you to come and lead my life. And if you pray that or something like it, immediately Jesus through the Holy Spirit will come and live in you. And as you give yourself daily over to the Holy Spirit, all these characteristics will come to the surface. For the rest of us, for those that say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. The question is, when you hear these things, are they concurrent with your life? Do you find yourself at odds with kingdom identity and kingdom living? If that's the case, it's probably time for you to mourn over your sin, to move from being sin neutral to really learning to hate the things that God hates so that you can become all he wants you to become so that he can develop in you a pure heart so that you can see him rightly and see the world around you lightly. And so Jesus, I pray for those in the room that desperately need to see you in a new way. As we take communion now, as we take uh, the wafer reminding us of the broken body. As we drink the juice, which reminds us of the shed blood, that, that we would take that all in and recognize that we didn't have a shot before the cross, but that through the cross, we have the opportunity to be crucified with Christ so that we can live the life that we've been called to live.